Right, well, here we are. Here we are after this relentless month. And uh, uh, obviously, the uh, more astute amongst you will have worked out for a long time now that the topic for tonight's talk is, in fact, a joke. Uh, no, I mean, the idea that we would do the whole of Jewish history in one hour is insane enough, but that I would presume to talk about the future, the one topic that I most certainly don't know anything about, and uh, neither does anyone in this room, I'm assuming. I'm always blaming the people that come in special spaceships from the future to take my socks and my things that I can't find, but uh, we really don't know anything about the future. Nevertheless, this talk will have some structure to it, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. I actually, uh, in addition to all of the things that Ari spoke about, I was uh, wanting to add my own thanks, uh, but I might just do that at the end, and I think that we'll, uh, we'll launch straight into the, into the topic. And it's an interesting topic because uh, it's nuts, but it is the one topic in which we might be able to touch on just about everything that we've covered in the last month. I saw the hands go up. I have no idea which of my talks people have attended. We gave a series on on the prophets in Tanakh, we gave a series on Jewish thought of the last 1,000 years, we gave a series on the Talmudic period, we gave a series on women in Jewish history in the Bible, we gave a series on Kabbalah, we really touched upon a great many topics, and some of them actually were quite in-depth, and I always uh, assume zero knowledge on behalf of any audience, but I also always endeavour to treat an audience with the potential to reach the deepest level. So what the level that we've been talking about is not 101, it's just a very advanced dive into some of the deep issues that are currently in front of scholarship in the Jewish world. And really, my job was to open up ideas and texts about events and personalities and periods of history and thought uh, so that it would give you a taste of, of uh, what can be looked into. Tonight's talk, however, is really, I've called it, uh, that says reserved, but I assume it's reserved for my coat. But, yep. uh, the, uh, the topic really, uh, and I know that there are many expectations in the audience. I know that many of you have come wondering what I'm going to say, including myself. <laughs> but I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes generally, and then the real guts of this talk that I want to share with you is a fascinating uh, topic. It's uh, a topic that I have been uh, <coughs> uh, perhaps uh, reading on and off, as I'm sure many of you have. Uh, it's the topic of Jewish eschatology, this big word, eschatology. Put your hand up if you're familiar with the word eschatology. Of course, some of you are. Uh, it's a very useful word to use at dinner parties when you want to intimidate people. And it really means... Uh, that view of any particular culture or spiritual system about the end of times, what is going to unfold, what do we know from the classic sources of the Jewish tradition about what we can expect in the future. And there are many, many, many different sources and many, many different discussions and many, many different traditions. And the whole field is really quite confusing. What I'm hoping to do tonight is go through some of the stages uh, that uh, the sources talk about and perhaps put them in a coherent order 
and maybe dive a little bit in an interesting way into some of the aspects that we've heard of, but are going, oh, what's that about? Some of you will be outraged. Some of you will go, I can't believe he's talking about that. Uh, and indeed, I want to emphasize from the beginning that I'm presenting the sources. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not standing up here as some sort of Pentecostal, maniacal preacher going, the doom is impending. If it's going to feel like that, it's because the sources are telling us the doom is impending. Uh, but there's much to be look forward to in the Jewish future. I want to, before, but before we start our eschatological journey, I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about, because there are some of the things that, you know, it's not all about my talks during this month. I've had many, many conversations with different people. And some of the things that I do highlight in terms of my own philosophy and my own outlook uh, for many years that I've been teaching about Jewish texts and ideas, uh, people have questions on that and sometimes certain points speak to certain people in certain ways. We really, really don't know anything about the future. Judaism, which regards time as sacred, is an unfolding continuum. Is an unfolding continuum. If you spoke to the rabbis of the Tanaitic era, and I don't need to explain to you when that is because you did a Talmudic course with me, so you know that it's the early Talmudic period. If you spoke to the rabbis of the Talmudic period of the Tanaitic and you said to them that in 2,000 years, 2,000 years time, that's twice as long as has already been since Sinai, in two, well, since King David by that point, in 2,000 years time, an incomprehensible future, the Jewish people will be dispersed all around the world. There will be a giant massacre, a huge destruction. Amalek will rise again and wipe out six million Jews. And then immediately they will be restored to their land and will have sovereignty over the land of Israel. If you described that to them, they would say to you, that is the messianic age. That is the classic picture that we have. Not that they would have said 2,000 years, because I'm fairly sure that they would have thought that it was going to happen a lot sooner. So we don't know. We don't know about the future, and we don't know how far we have to come. In a couple of the lectures, I have alluded to my own opinion, and I'm loath to present my own opinion, but when you spend years with the entire span of Jewish history, and you go around the Jewish world talking, you sometimes feel entitled to give opinions, but at the same time, I don't want to privilege my opinions. But I believe, unlike a lot of other uh, people uh, who are fairly convinced that we are right near the end of our historical journey, I would actually uh, argue that we've only really just begun. I think that the Jewish people in the future, in the next couple of centuries, are going to have some very, very profound cultural inquiries. I think that there is a whole intellectual, spiritual and cultural journey that the Jewish people have yet to take with much of the Eastern world, with India and with China, which come with tremendous systems of their own, just as our ancestors had, when they thought that everything was done and dusted, suddenly had an encounter with Hellenism that then started the world on an entirely new track. 
and I think the great synthetic capability of the Jewish people, its ability to absorb ideas, react to them, change, and then send them out back into the world, is really <laughs> ahead of us in terms of some of the great cultural systems that happen on this planet as humanity itself is unfolding. But one thing will always be certain, and that is that the Jewish people will be at the center of whatever is going on. That is not hubris, that is not arrogance, that is simply fact. That is simply looking at the location of the land of Israel at the juncture of three continents, that is looking at the dispersal of the Jewish people, that is understanding how Jewish people are neurotic and can't mind their own business, and that is understanding how Jews have always been at the forefront of this type of ferment. So we know that will happen. We don't know, and here's a little bit of controversial, but you can hold on to you know, clench your buttocks and just release them in a moment. <laughs> but I will tell you that as we looked when we saw, when we saw the uh, prophet Jeremiah, and what was Jeremiah's big point? Jeremiah's big point on the eve of the destruction of the temple was, <laughs> do not think that because you have control over the land of Israel, and that you're settling in the land of Israel, that that is inviolable. Do not think that. Do not think you have a divine right to be in this place unconditionally. The state of Israel has been the central project of the Jewish people for 70 year, nearly 70 years now, but it is a bubble. It is a bubble. In the last 2,000 years, we have had bubbles like this, never as monumental and as sophisticated as the bubble we have now, but for that bubble to become something more permanent, for it to effect a change in the direction of humanity, we need to just see what unfolds. One thing we do know is that unless we attempt to build a society based on justice, then we're not going to be there for very long. But we're going to come back to that and I don't want anybody to get any big doomsday scenarios about that because the general belief is that the Jewish people are here in the land of Israel and they are there to stay. That we have entered in some way a new phase of Jewish history that's very, very exciting. And those of you who visit Israel regularly and see that society and its incredible depth and its incredible achievements know what I'm talking about. And the other thing, the one more thing I want to say informally about the future, and the one thing that we know from a study of the past, is that we will always be a people of the book. We will always be a people of the text. If you want to be read in a thousand years' time, Write something in Hebrew or something that is related to a Jewish text. We are the ones that will carry text forward. I'm here to tell you, as a scholar who deals in libraries and universities all of the time, and I deal with manuscripts and I deal with ancient books, I'm here to tell you something that academics are only going to realize in a few years' time. And that is... <laughs> that they will not know in the future. They will not know what existed before our time. Oh, how so, David? Because 
we now have the digital capacity to create ancient texts. And I have seen texts that have been created in a digital age and uploaded onto databases where everything is electronically presented without the actual physical book. And you would not know. And scholars in the future will be arguing, and who will they have to refer to? They will only refer to people that have been studying those texts for generations and will tell you, we have the physical text. Now, this might be ooga-booga to some of you. It might sound like science fiction, but I'm, I see it on a daily basis. All right, but enough of my opinions. I want to come back to my opinions at the end, of course, but we will talk, I want to talk a little bit about eschatology and about the vision of the future. <laughs> because whatever happens, the classical sources of the Jewish people, which some believe come to us via divine inspiration, some people believe through prophecy, some people believe through tremendous insight into human culture, in whichever way people arrive at it, we have some very, very ancient traditions. And there are people right now who believe that some of these predictions are already starting to be fulfilled. I know, as you do, that Many, many generations have thought that they were the generation in which these things were unfolding. If you were living in the, 12th, in the 11th or 12th centuries, you would have thought that as well. It would have fit certain patterns. But our generation is uniquely placed, in a way, to allow itself to think of itself as perhaps a generation in which <laughs> we may see some things unfolding. But I'm going to leave those decisions up to you. I want to go through these stages, and I want you to draw your own conclusions from them. When we talk about... Because, <laughs> because ultimately, what are we talking about when we talk about eschatology? We are talking about redemption. We are talking about the point at which the Jewish people arrive in their history when they actually bring humanity to this next phase of species consciousness. This idea of the divine in the world, the idea of the absolute futility of conflict, the idea of the totally equal distribution in a sense, not distribution, equal distribution in a, in a Marxist communist sense, but equal distribution in terms of the facilities and dignity afforded every human being, the true striving towards the alleviation of suffering for all people on the planet. These types of movements within humanity, the Jewish people need to be at the forefront of. That is our role. Ultimately, it's also our role to produce this concept, which I'm going to speak about briefly, called the Messiah. The Messiah, as I've pointed out, is not, especially when I gave the talks on Christianity, the Messiah is not, in Judaism, the engine of Jewish history. We are not working towards a Messiah. A Messiah is a culmination of the efforts of many generations and is a symbolic representation of it. Redemption, say the sages of Israel, can come in one of two ways. 
And you'll find this phrase in the 60th chapter of the book of Yeshayahu, the book of Isaiah, which we talked about at length. The phrase is, In its time, I shall hasten it. In its time, I shall hasten it. What do we mean, in its time? That's paradoxical. You are either hastening the redemption, or it's in its time. So the sages of Israel tell us that there are fundamentally two ways in which the redemption will come. It will enfold naturally in a plan that is already predetermined in history, or, or, because we actually have free choice, not only individually but collectively, to change things, it can come as a result of our efforts and our action. It can come speedily. It can come speedily. Achishena. We know about redemption. We know about redemption because Maimonides tells us, as so do the many other sages, but the Rambam is particularly uh, specific on this aspect, that when we are told to believe in God, when the Jewish people are told to believe in God, which is a mitzvah, it's a precept according to Maimonides, not according to Kreskas, who I discussed in the philosophy talks, he demolishes this. But according to Maimonides, it is a commandment to believe in God, which he derives from the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Well, you don't have I am the Lord your God unless there is someone saying I am the Lord your God, therefore we believe. It's a classic medieval argument. But the Rambam points out that it's not I am the God who created the world. It is I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Redemption is a mode of the divine. And it is a mode of the divine that we are required, according to Maimonides, to believe in as an aspect of God. It's not that God created the universe and walked away. God is invested in humanity, invested in creation, and sticks it out until redemption. Redemption, as you know, in classic Jewish tradition, must take place at some point before the year 6000. We are currently in the year 5774, according to some authorities a little later, it's 5938 according to some. Now those of you who are listening to this after the year 6000, <laughs> uh, please be aware that we are aware that uh, this may not happen in this way, and no doubt you will have worked out all of your theological arguments and discussions about why it didn't happen before the year 6000. Most of the sages of Israel castigate people who spend time speculating on when redemption is going to happen, and then spend pages and pages and pages talking about it. But according to tradition, it's going to happen sometime in the next 226 years. A prox. Sometime before 2240, the world will have reached the minimum, at least, of what we would call a messianic state. Call it a Star Trek universe, whatever you want to call it. 
but war will have ceased, poverty will have ceased, disease will have ceased, the dignity of the human being will be the central project of humanity, not the pursuit of economic growth, not the pursuit of colonizing anyone else or exploiting anyone else, not the not the pursuit of any material values per se, but the inherent dignity and comfort of every human being on the planet and respect for who they are. That and that every person on the planet will have access to that charter of human rights that will emerge. But to get there, to get there, there are a number of stages that happen. There are a number of stages, and I'm going to go through the stages quickly. Some of you will be familiar with some of them, some of you won't. And we'll go through them as quickly as we can, and then we'll have a little look at where we are by the end of that. So put on your seatbelts now, because it's a bit of a ride. I'm going to take you through about, I mean, I don't really know, but I'm estimating about, about 20 different stages. But we'll put them on the board, and we'll go through them. As I said, the sources are very complex. The discussions are very complex, and they're disparate. Right throughout Talmudic sources, Midrashic sources, Biblical sources, we have a very, very complex picture, but certain key things emerge consistently. And amongst all of the opinions, there is one thing that tends to happen first in the opinion of all of the sages of Israel for millennia regarding the redemption of the world and of Israel, because the two are dependent. And the first of those is, I'm going to rub this because we're going to use the board and I'll, I'll number them so we can see. We'll see if I land on 20 or so. A process called the ingathering of the exiles. The ingathering of the exiles. In Hebrew, kibbutz galuyot. That can happen in one of several possible ways, but there's no question that in the last 150 years or so of Jewish history, we have definitively seen an ingathering of the exiles a collective of the diaspora that comes together to rebuild the land of Israel, and eventually, obviously, in 1948, after that watershed, a totally proactive ingathering of the exiles. This, in particular, ingathering of the exiles is often preceded, not often, always, preceded by a genocidal catastrophe. This was the case when we came out of Egypt in biblical times with the nation of Amalek, this is attributed to the story of Esther that is almost upon us with the festival of Purim to when we came back to the land of Israel to Zion to rebuild the temple, Haman, the manifestation of Amalek, and it happened in the 20th century when we came back to the land of Israel and, of course, the rise of Nazism and the genocide of European Jewry, the Shoah. The ingathering of the exiles is a fundamental step that shows you that we have entered, according to the sources, that we have entered a period which the sages refer to as the ikvata, the ikvata, the Meshicha. This is Aramaic, the footsteps of the Messiah. 
and like footsteps, what they'll tell you is that you can have Achishena, I will hasten it, within the Be'ita, within its time. So the footsteps get quicker. They start methodically and then they hurry up as the process moves along. Many people, now you understand why many, many people messianically and eschatologically in kind people in the Jewish world regard the Zionist project as a messianic project. We, of course, have two messiahs in Judaism, just like we have two Talmuds and we have two this. Of course, we have two messiahs. You are aware of that. They are known in the lingo as, as MBY and MBD. That's a joke, you're not known as that. <laughs> MBY stands for Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph. And the other is Messiah the son of David. The Messiah the son of Joseph is a military and physical warrior, in a sense, a political leader. And the Messiah the son of David is a spiritual figure. In order to produce the Messiah the son of David, the ultimate messianic figure, the Jewish people have to produce someone that looks like Mahatma Gandhi times Nelson Mandela on crack. <laughs> it has to be someone who, maybe throw the Dalai Lama in there as well. It has to be someone whose spiritual level is so high that the entire world is convinced by the truth of their project and their entire project is devoted to peace and human dignity. That's a person with tremendous power. <coughs> to show just how much the ingathering of the exiles in the 20th century was regarded as part of the Messianic project, even a figure as elevated as someone like Rav Cook at a moment regarded Herzl as the Messiah, the son of Joseph. The political, secular project of Zionism was regarded, is regarded as a Messianic project. Once you've got the ingathering of the exiles, and of course, huh, well, we know, because we know. Remember all the prophets are prophesying, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're all talking about the return to Zion after the Babylonian dispersal, after the Babylonian exile. When that, when that happened, when Cyrus got up, the great Persian leader, and he announced the Jews can come back to rebuild the temple, I'm here to tell you it'll come as a shock, but not everybody went back. There were, amazingly, and this really will surprise you, people who were comfortable in their suburbs in Babylon. Their kids were at good schools. They had good jobs. They had nice houses. They said, look, I'm not against the Zionist project. That's very nice, but it's not for me. Others can do it, and I'll support them. I'll give them a check every year, and it'll be nice. But it's not really for me. I mean, imagine people saying that. <laughs> and that was, in a way, a similar concept that happened. It is a voluntary return, in a way. I know that not everybody uh, that came back to Israel was really in a position to call it voluntary, but it's a voluntary return. Once you are settled in the land, and blah de blah de blah you know, you, have, you build your institutions, you have your wars, you do this, but you're basically there, and then you're tasked, the Jewish people are tasked with attempting to return to certain core values of the Jewish people. If we look, for example, in the first chapter of Yeshayahu, you'll see some of those values outlined. For example, the Oshiva Shoftayich Kvarishona. 
I will restore your judges as of old. And the rabbis have always understood that to mean the reconstruction of this extremely interesting institution called the Sanhedrin. You know that Napoleon reconstructed the Sanhedrin in some sort of messianic fit after breakfast. <laughs> and in fact, a few years ago, they reconstructed the Sanhedrin in the land of Israel. I'm showing you the steps outlined by the sages. I'm showing you what's happened, and you can determine with me where we are in this framework, if indeed we are in this framework. Now, one of the things they constructed, the Sanhedrin, it looked very impressive when they started it. Who's heard of the Sanhedrin that they set up? Not just heard of the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin they set up in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s. Yep, you're familiar with it. You know who they put at the head of it? Sorry? Very, very good. Very, very good. So they put Rabbi Adin Steinzeltz at the head of it, fantastically respected figure, and they filled it with rabbis who all said, as soon as rabbis greater than us want their seat, we'll vacate our seat. It all looked very nice, but a lot of parts of the Jewish world didn't hop on board. And really, if you're asking my personal opinion, please don't listen to this if you're offended, is that I don't, because I actually know people personally who are on the Sanhedrin, that it hasn't necessarily fulfilled the brief that we would have, I can't believe people started writing as soon as I said this, that we would want it to, to go back to its core values. One of the things that the Sanhedrin has been occupied itself with in its first few years, which is a nice idea, but really you would think there were other priorities, was to determine who in the Jewish world today has the best pedigree, lineage pedigree, to become the restored Nasi, the restored representative of the House of David that was going to lead the Sanhedrin. So they did this big search and people brought their pedigrees and their lineages and it so happens that they found out the person who has the best pedigree and the best lineage and it just so happened coincidentally to be the chairman of that particular committee that was looking at that project. <laughs> so the Sanhedrin has had mixed, mixed reviews and we haven't heard much about it. The fact that I'm talking to an audience as august and esteemed and as learned as you and you're not fully aware of it shows that the Sanhedrin has not really come to the fore. And to be honest, they have become fairly politically mired in some of the debates that are current to our time rather than perhaps the universal values that I would want them and others would want them to be looking at. But I'm not going to critique them. They have established the Sanhedrin and they... So, but we're going to call this... Uh, yeah, we're going to call this, the, we can call this point the Sanhedrin, because it definitely is, I mean, remember they tried to revive it also even in 16th century Tzfat, another big messianic uh, period uh, of, of anticipated redemption. They revived the smicha, the original smicha from the Tanaitic period. The Sanhedrin of our age was reinstituted in Tiberias, where it was last disbanded nearly 2,000 years ago. So they did the whole thing. Then the rabbis tell us in the Talmud and in mystical sources and sources that are hundreds and even thousands of years old, that close to the advent of the Messiah, of the redemption, we will see the revival, we will see the revival of the trelet. Put your hand up if you know what the trelet is. Oh, outstanding, very good. So in the Torah, when you wear the tzitzit, the fringes on the corners of the garments. The Torah tells you that one of those fringes is to be blue, or whatever color trelet is. We understand it to be a type of sky blue. And for hundreds and hundreds, if not almost, almost two millennia, the 
particular animal from which the dye was obtained to make the tzitzit blue was lost. It was thought to be extinct, or the tradition as to which animal exactly it was passed away, and so all tzitzit have been white until now. Because in the 1990s, people started wearing trelet. Of course, throughout the 20th century, people had been discussing trelet. And as you would be aware, those of you who are familiar with the subject, is that there are, of course, two possible types of trelet. One comes from a type of squid, and one comes from the, a particular type of uh, shell animal, the murex, which, which uh, the dyers obtained. Funnily enough, and it's too extensive and complex to go into now, those of you who are familiar with the subtleties of the Jewish world will realize that those two animals themselves and the two camps that uh, support those two opinions really represent one of the types of fault lines in the Jewish world today. Um, and when I say fault lines, always bear in mind that compared to other times in Jewish history, the world, Jewish world today is fairly unified. Um, that's probably got more to do with the state of Israel than anything else, but uh, there are two camps, and, and one is really deep within the Hasidic world. Not that the Hasidim are wearing the trelet, because most are not. In fact, most of the Jewish world does not yet wear the trelet, but the squid is supported, uh, which was uh, produced by within the Hasidic world, and those Hasidim who do wear the trelet tend to go after the squid, whereas the murex was developed by the hardcore uh, Zionist rabbis at the in Beit El and other places, and it looks to us a lot like the murex is, in fact, the one It seems to follow the descriptions given by the rabbis. I had a fascinating, I'll just, I'll, I'll pepper this with personal insights, in, because which I find interesting even if you don't, but the, uh, I, I had a fascinating dinner a few years ago with Dr. Raoul Hoffman, who is, was a Nobel Prize winning chemist, who was actually asked to uh, write up the chemical processes of the trelet, and what his, when I sat and listened to him describing this, it was so amazing because what happens is, is when you actually dye the wool with the dye, uh, it goes white. It goes white. And it stays white, and you couldn't work out how, until you expose it to sunlight and then miraculously in front of you. I mean, Dr. Hoffman actually said to me that shivers went up his spine when he saw it, even though he understood the chemical processes. In front of you, it turns this amazing sky blue. And if that actually sounds like a metaphor for what happened to the tzitzit itself, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's white, and then suddenly the blue returns. So it's a very, very fascinating thing. So obviously, if you've got the ingathering of exiles, you've got the restoration of the Sanhedrin, you've got the return of the trelet, so people are going, ah, oh, what's next? Well, I'll tell you what's next. And what's next has not quite yet happened. And what's next is I'm realising the time I'm going to have to go quickly if we're going to get to our, I don't know, maybe we might do 20, we'll see how we go. Next is this, but this is a wild card. There's a wild card. There's a couple of wild cards in this whole process that can shift the dynamic suddenly. This big wild card that happens here, <coughs> which we're still waiting for, is the para aduma, the red cow, the red cow. Now, <laughs> the red cow, everybody's heard of the red cow, and every few years you'll see some newspaper article in some obscure journal about some guy in, he's got a ranch in Wisconsin or Montana and he's got a red cow there and they're all very excited and he's run down to his local Chabad house to tell them I've got a red cow and whatever. 
And then after two or three years, they realize, actually, it's got a couple of black hairs or a couple of, it's not pure red cow. As we know from the Torah, why do we need a red cow? Why do we need a red cow? Well, a red cow is prescribed in the Torah, the paraduma, the ashes of a paraduma, mixed with <coughs> living water and sprinkled on the person, is the only way that a person can elevate themselves out of Levitical impurity contracted by con defilement through contact with the dead. If you have physical contact with a dead person, with a corpse, the only way you can become purified in the Levitical law in the Torah is through this process of the red cow. That is why the red cow is perceived as a sign of the redemption, because from the moment of the exile, from the moment the exile began, which is also two opinions, according to some, the year 70, according to some, 135, but whenever that exile began in the first century, the whole nation of Israel descends to the lowest possible level of Levitical impurity. Or everyone, doesn't matter how holy anyone is, Levitically, we are all at the level of contact with the dead. The para duma is a sign that allows us to rise up out of that. And in, why would we want to do that? Because if we do that, and what I might do here, if we talk about the red cow here, the paraduma here, I might actually, because what we're going to do is just, really, this would take us on a side journey. Because if the red cow, the red cow doesn't have to appear for redemption to come. Red cow can come later. But if red cow doesn't come, then we can build the temple and restore the kahuna. Restore the priesthood. Because without a red cow, you can't restore the priesthood and you can't restore the sacrifices. Because Remember, don't freak out. Don't freak out. There are great sages who say that in the, late, in the end of times, when we build the temple, we won't be having sacrifice anymore. There are great sages who believe that we'll be vegetarians. <laughs> there are. That the slaughter of meat will no longer be in the world. But you can restore the kahuna and because you need Levitical purity. A lot of people think that you need Levitical purity to rebuild the temple. You don't. You can rebuild the temple even betumah, even though in an unclean state. If the majority of the nation is in an unclean state, you can still rebuild the temple. And you can even offer a sacrifice. Which sacrifice? Which is the only sacrifice you can offer if most of the nation is unclean? And, but you, still, you can still do it. Which one is it? Am I hearing guesses or I'm hearing informed answers? Okay, I'm hearing guesses, so I'll tell you. <laughs> it's the Paschal sacrifice. Now, interesting side point. Stop recording. Oh, no. I was actually, I can't believe I'm about to share this with you because it's actually quite, I've been sharing it because I want to, because I've, um, but <laughs> some of you are going to think this is completely, this is going to give you a totally different perspective on me, but um, I was actually in 2009, I was part of a, I was invited to be, a, in a sense, a consultant on a very high-level operation uh, to perform a Paschal sacrifice uh, on Har Habayit, on the Temple Mount. Uh, you have to understand that, uh, until recently, um, Jews were totally not allowed under the, the Waqf, had an arrangement with the State of Israel 
Temple Mount was off limits, and even on occasions where Jews could go up, and it's still very, very controlled, you're not actually allowed to uh, be seen by yourself moving your lips. In case you're praying, you'll be removed. Right? You can go up there, you can look around, you're not allowed to pray, Jews are not allowed to do anything on Harabite. It's controlled by the waqf. <coughs> we'll come back to that in a moment. So to go up there and slaughter a lamb and sprinkle its blood on an altar and say a lot of prayers is challenging. <laughs> when you've got hundreds of cops and military police and soldiers and the waqf and hundreds of um, you know, uh, Muslims up there who, like a powder keg, only need to see a Jew, you know, take out his talus and they have a riot, and we're going to sacrifice a lamb and we're going to do a korban pesach. And we had the entire operation worked up. We knew exactly those of you who want to ask me later, I'll tell you how it was going to be done. Uh, but it was stopped at the very last minute uh, by two very, very big poskim who at the last minute said, now is not the time. Uh, it's interesting because sacrifices can be offered today, not on the Temple Mount, but they can be offered today by non-Jews. Non-Jews who wish to offer a totally valid sacrifice to the God of Israel can do it. They need a proper altar, there's all sorts of conditions they've got to do, but they can do it according to Jewish law and according to Jewish tradition. I have actually seen altars built and dedicated. You need virgin stones, you need this, it's a very complicated procedure, but people are doing these things as we speak. So as soon as they press the button, they say, go, these guys are all ready to go. Make no mistake. But assuming we do not have a red cow, and assuming that does not turn up, because that can turn up at any stage in all of the stages I'm talking about, it doesn't automatically lead to redemption. The red cow simply means we can build the temple and start the sacrifices again, and we've got a whole set of priests. But either way... I want to go to step five, because step five is really an important step. Step five clearly has not happened yet. You could say this has happened, this has happened, this has happened, and this is sometimes maybe, you know, who knows. But this one hasn't happened yet, but we're told it will. And that is, this is where it's going to get a little hairy for some. All right? Those of you who can't handle it should leave now, because this is... In gathering of the exiles two. And this one is not voluntary. Everyone goes because they have to. Because they have to. Now some of you, and I know South California is very nice, and I mean I live in Sydney, it's very nice, and it's hard for us to even imagine, but bear in mind that in my opinion and the opinion of others in the world, and brace yourselves for this as much as you don't want to hear it, but in most Western countries of the world, in somewhere between 40 to 50 years from now, shrita will be illegal, milah will be illegal, just about, just about. Just about. Some predict that in, in, in half a century, Israel will be the only Western country in the world where you can actually perform a circumcision. Look at what's happening in society. Now, this society is not necessarily wrong. It's not like these evil decrees to wipe out Judaism that we saw under Antiochus IV and we saw under Hadrian. This is just the whole politically correct direction that society is heading, but you can see it. 
And we also know that when it's time for the Jews to go to the land of Israel, it will be time and it will be sudden. But we're told that there's an ingathering of the exiles, not by choice. Either we are kicked out of existing countries or it just becomes blindingly obvious to everyone that we need to be in the land of Israel. And really, there's a famous Midrash because we're told at the end of days that after the end of the Roman exile, and we have been in the Roman exile till now, we have been in the Galut of Edom, which has been dominated by Christianity. But towards the end of that, we're told in a very scary Midrash, which you find in Yalkut Shimoni, we're told in a very scary Midrash that the kingdom of Yishmael, Hallowsville, the kingdom of Yishmael will rule the world for nine months. The kingdom of Yishmael. Now, <coughs> we talked about rebuilding the temple. I mean, there are several opinions on rebuilding the temple. There are opinions that it's like, from the ground up, we build it. And there are opinions that it comes down. But even if we go to the opinion that we build it, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, that's got to be built by Messiah, the son of David, who I'll talk about in a few minutes. But even if we want to build it in uncleanliness because we're just fervent and we just want to do it because, as you know, the famous statement of the sages, every generation that doesn't build the temple is as though it destroyed it. The temple's supposed to be the symbol of peace for the whole world. We cannot build it. We cannot build it and at the same time demolish a 7th century mosque that has been sitting there and which would inflame violent conflict right throughout the whole world. We can't do that. I don't care what anyone says. We can't do that and expect to build a temple that is supposed to serve its purpose because the temple is a building of peace. I have seen plans where, you know, there's the... That's the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock. Nee, 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 nee. And I have actually seen plans where they're thinking that maybe they could build a ginormous ramp that goes over it, on top of which is the temple. <laughs> Who's to say? We know, we know, we know that the world's conflicts must be solved theologically. It will not be solved by armed struggle. It will be solved by human beings acting like human beings. All right. But then, 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 once Malchut Yishmael reaches its end, or as part of its end, we have the big prophecy that you'll find, and I spoke about this when we spoke about the prophet Ezekiel, you'll find it in chapters 38, 39 of the book of Ezekiel, and the rabbis come back later after the Bible, and they talk about this, the big theme, and the... That, of course, is the, <coughs> the, big, <coughs> the big conflict of Gog and Magog. We don't know. We don't, every question you're about to ask, we don't know. Is it Gog of Magog? Is it Gog and Magog? Who is Gog? Who is Magog? We know that there's these two giant forces in the world. One of them might be friendly towards the Jewish people. One of them definitely isn't. They, but whatever happens, they all come towards the land of Israel. There is a giant, massive global conflict that ends with 
an entire world army comprised of many nations that come to the borders of the land of Israel and are gathered together for the purpose of destruction. And in the book of Ezekiel, that's when it all happens. God, in some manifestation of the divine, comes along and slaughterates them at the last minute. Slaughterate. <laughs> Millions die. And as famously we discussed, it takes seven years to clean up all the bodies. And then, and then, we can call this step eight, and then we have the appearance, which everybody talks about, the appearance of Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet is the herald of the messianic era. Elijah the prophet, and I gave a talk on Eliyahu Hanavi, that one of the functions of Elijah the prophet, as we know, why do we know that it's Elijah the prophet? Because we're really leading to the next step, which is the restoration of prophecy, of nevoah. And we know that Elijah has to be the first prophet that comes back, because when I say comes back, he's never really gone, according to classic sources, wandering around, but he puts in an appearance because of the last verses of the prophet Malachi, the last of the prophets. I'm sending you Elijah the prophet. And what does Elijah the prophet do ultimately? Apart from all the things the rabbis say he's going to do, he's going to answer all difficult halakhic questions, he's going to do this, he's going to point out exactly who's Jewish, who's not, who's meant to be this, who's meant to be that. It's called cool. He's going to be responsible for the restoration of prophecy. But what is his ultimate function, says the prophet Malachi? Because the prophet Malachi tells you, prophecy is now ending. It's now ending. This is already in the 5th century BCE. It's now ending. It will be restored by Elijah. Elijah, vehishiv leiv avot al banim, vehishiv banim al avot. I will return the hearts of the children to their parents and the hearts of the parents to their children. It is an intergenerational reconciliation between generations, between ages. It is effectively a symbol of peace for the world. The restoration of Nebuah, of course, once you have prophets of Israel walking around, well, there, you know, there's not much room left for idolatrous cults and false religions and all sorts of things. They're going to get completely geschmeist. And ultimately, we see the restoration of the Malchut, the kingdom of David, the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Now, remember this. It seems to be the case that the rest, this is the last restoration of the Davidic kingdom and really the messianic figure, and we can call number 11, out of which comes the, the revelation of the identity of the Messiah, and that is if the Messiah is a person, because the Messiah may well be an epoch or it might be an idea, but that is the finalization of a curve in Jewish history that is thousands of years old from the moment we actually asked the prophet Samuel for a king. We weren't meant to have a king, but once we had a king, we had to go on this whole journey of thousands of years to get to the point where we end up with this ultimate king, Messiah, and then we can go back to how it was meant to be. And the reason I'm separating those two is because the restoration of the Davidic kingdom doesn't necessarily yet to give us the identity of the Messiah. 
but once the Messiah is around, then we move into stage 12. I'll call that stage 12, which we might call, <laughs> and this, this is obviously another one where people go, oh. Uh, and, that is, and that is what we call the Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. Should be a Hollywood movie, shouldn't it? The Day of Judgment. And that is the Day of Judgment for all the nations in the world. We don't really know what that looks like. They are judged on how they have behaved as nations in the world to one another, towards the Jewish people. But uh, by all accounts, the consequences of it are going to be devastating. According to some sources, notably Rashi, one third of the world's population will survive. Other opinions say one third will be wiped out. But either way, definitely, after that particular episode, really, uh, the world, in a sense, is starting again. Let's call this 1314, because, in fact, those could come, they might come from here, but they are sitting there, because once that happens, the new political war order is called by the sages of Israel and particularly picked up by people like Maimonides as Shibud Malchuyot, the subjugation of the nations. This is the idea that those who talk about the protocols of the elders of Zion get very excited about, all oh, the Jews want to subjugate the nations. But really, it's pointing towards a new political world order. And in that political world order, this city that has been the center of world conflict for so long, for so long, because <coughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't need to tell you that the, uh, where did I put the water? Right there. I don't need to tell you that the Middle East conflict is a little older than 1948. As for so long, will in fact become the centre of peace for the whole world. The United Nations will move to Jerusalem. Seriously. The uh, Jerusalem will be seen as a centre of peace for the whole world. And as a symbol of a conflict that ultimately became resolved will be, have the moral authority to give guidance and an industry of peace for the whole world. And then in 16 we enter, I'm calling this 16, but we enter into the new millennium, this concept of the Shabbat of the world, the seventh millennium. By the time we're here, we're already in the supernatural. All of these things could happen in a natural way, but by the time we're here, we're in the supernatural. Now, there is another wild card at this point that can take us right from here, straight to here. Right from here, straight to here, and miss all of this. And that, of course, is if the Jewish people keep properly two Shabbatot. If the entire Jewish world keeps two Sabbaths properly, we move straight to here. And we enter the Messianic age. This is why, because the seventh millennium is called the millennium of the Sabbath, that is why, just as on Shabbat, we light the Shabbat candles and we bring in Shabbat a little before Shabbat, so in the seventh millennium, we bring the seventh millennium in a little bit before. That's why people who are excited by this picture think that now, at any moment, it could happen because we're quite late on Friday afternoon already. After that, we get what has been promised by the prophets and the sages and the mystics of Israel and has at various times come about and people say, oh, nice idea, but wrong time. And that is, we get a new 
Torah. We get a new Torah. We get a new Torah. We get a new Torah at the level of the revelation of Sinai. This new Torah, as we know, uh, well, those, those who are familiar with the medieval mystical work of Seferat Munah, how each 7,000-year cycle represents a certain sphera in the sephirot that we looked at, and right now we're in the cycle of Gvura, so we'll move into the sphera of Tiferet, a new 7,000-year cycle in which we will, it will be the Torah of Tiferet. The Torah of Tiferet is a Torah that we see visually. We don't have to strive to understand it. It's right in front of us. We see it. It's very appropriate for the iPad generation. We know that there are only two festivals that we have now that will survive into the next phase of Jewish history. Those two festivals, of course, are Purim and Hanukkah. In our age, both rabbinic festivals. They're not mentioned in the Torah, they're rabbinic festivals, and those will be the only two festivals that we will keep. One of which symbolizes the open, miraculous intervention of the divine in human affairs, Hanukkah, and the other, the concealed, behind-the-scenes, natural way in which the divine intervenes, which is the story of Esther. And when I spoke about Esther at length a couple of weeks ago uh, to uh, the Hadassah group, we talked about this idea of concealment. But Purim and Hanukkah are the two things, and then very quickly, and then by the time we get to 18, we are already, <laughs> we're talking about the big one, which is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, we don't know really. Now, there's two big discussions, two big streams of thought. I'm only going to go for another minute. I can see the time. Two big discussions of thought about the resurrection of the dead. And will it be in a body, a physical body, or is it some sort of ethereal soul concept? Or are we, in fact, sort of like these highly refined spiritual avatars that walk around the planet? Most mystics will tell you that it is very much in the body. It is a resurrection of every human being in the body. We do not understand this. This sounds like science fiction or it sounds like absolute la-la. The Jewish people have believed in the resurrection. Even someone as open-minded as Yosef Albor, and a couple of you would have heard me speak on Yosef Albor, if you, even someone demands that resurrection of the dead is seen as the ultimate manifestation of divine providence right down to the individual level. We as a nation have believed in that ultimate hope that ultimate hope that every individual that's ever lived will somehow be restored in this better reality. And we believe that the divine is capable of doing that because the divine is infinite. And then, after the resurrection of the dead, we get this very strange event that the sages talk about. Some of you might have heard about it, called Se'udat Mashiach, the, the great banquet of the Messiah at which we eat the Leviathan. Now, we don't know what that means, but we know that everybody is there at this great banquet, and we hear songs sung by King David and words, you know, Moshe gives a talk on the parsha there, and, you know, everybody, you know, everybody does their thing, and it's this great big event. And it's always interesting, because I've often speculated, well, if you have Sudat Mashiach, don't talk, there are no people that talk about this, but I've been thinking about it. If you have Sudat Mashiach, then obviously after Sudat Mashiach, you're going to have Birkat Mazon. <laughs> and after, what, 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 is, what is right at the end of Birkat Mazon? What is right at the end of Birkat Mazon? No. 
not, not the Birkhan Amazon that I say. What is at the end of Birkhan Amazon? I don't know. There might be lots of different people here who use different nusach, different formulas for prayers, but the classic traditional prayers for Birkhan Amazon end with a paragraph that starts with Yeruet Hashem Kedushav. Who is familiar with that? Who knows what I'm talking about? And then it launches into this set of verses. Naar hayiti gam zakanti, veloraiti tzadik ne'ezav vezarom vakesh lachem. I was young, now I am, I've grown old, and I have never seen the righteous abandoned nor their seed seeking bread. This is obviously not necessarily a picture of our world. This is obviously a, a messianic picture. But it ends with the words, Hashem oz la'amo yiten, Hashem yivarech et amo v'shalom. So the last word in history, the right, the end, the Birkat Amazon of the Sudan Mashiach is the word shalom. It is the word peace. It is the total culminative point of where humanity is trying to arrive at. That's the Suda. And then finally, number 20, we get this thing called Olam Haba, the world to come, which no eye has seen it, O God, except you. And we have no idea what that means. Here we run out of pictures, we run out of ideas, we run out of suggestions. No one knows. Anyone who tells you that they know what the world to come looks like obviously has not yet been there. <laughs> this is, according to classic sources, what the Jewish people can expect from their eschatological picture. But what if this doesn't happen? And I want to just finish on a very, very, very deep and important point made in, uh, in the Talmudic period. And you find it in Avot the Rabbi Natan, this collection of Midrash. It's a statement made by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Who is, remembers who Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is? Very good. I've spoken about him a number of times. I spoke about him in Jewish history in one hour. We spoke about him in the Talmudic period. He is the guy who had the big chat with Vespasian. He is the guy who bridged the gap from the Second Temple period to ensure Jewish education as the mode of survival. He's the guy responsible for the construction and reconstruction of the Jewish people in Yavne in the first century. And he has a very famous statement regarding the Messiah. He said, if you have a tree sapling in your hand, a sapling, a little tree that you're about to plant, if you have one in your hand and you're about to plant it and they come and tell you that the Messiah is here, first plant the tree, <laughs> then go and greet the Messiah. And that really is how the Jewish people's attitudes towards the Messiah is. We hope that every moment is a gateway to redemption, a gateway to a deeper understanding on behalf of humanity of who it actually is, all of humanity, but particularly what the Jewish people are doing as an unfolding continuum within human history. And we hope and we pray that that will shift at any moment. But if it doesn't, we still must continue with the process of rebuilding the world bit by bit, of the process of tikkun olam, of constructing this world within our potential or even beyond our potential, within our lifetimes, within this world, so that we can ultimately try and leave our descendants a better world and a better reality to be in.
So thank you for listening to that. I want to, uh, obviously there are many, 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 many more things we could cover on that subject and those of you who are familiar with how distracted I can get would be aware of that. We could go into any of that in great detail. It's, it, it, people have been asking me for reading lists and for all sorts of different things, but my entire megama, my entire aim is to get people to go back to the source. Read the texts for yourself. Make yourself the person who has that journey, who decides, who interprets, who thinks, and who moves beyond. And if you can, bit by bit by bit, open your mind to the language of Hebrew and the language of the Jewish people, your experience will be enriched infinitely. And if you can do that in the context of also opening up bit by bit a journey in Jewish history to understand the context of what you're reading, then you will not need teachers. You will be your own explorer in this great adventure. So thank you for going with me in this trip, and uh, I look forward to seeing many of you in the future. Thank you.